Hello and welcome to Scott Rock, our brand new podcast by Climb Scotland, bringing you climbing stories and mountain tales from Scottish underdogs and local heroes. Your hosts are the legendary, well, me, Callum McBain, and me, Robert McKenzie. Callum, what is the plan, bud? Well, we both love interview podcasts, and for our jobs, we get to travel around and speak to loads of different climbers. So we thought we would combine both of these things and share the stories we hear through this podcast. That's right. We're not just interviewing the hardcore among you, but literally anyone that we think has a cool story to tell. And we know that there's a lot of you out there. So keep an eye out every fortnight for the latest Climber Chat. And if you have anyone you'd like to hear from, or if you want to be in the show yourself, let us know and spread the Scott Rock word. And remember, guys, when you get back out there climbing, back to the crags, back to the walls, be safe and do your buddy checks. Enjoy the podcast. Hey, everyone. Callum here with episode two of the Scott Rock podcast. I think we must be about three weeks into the current lockdown situation. And of the current weather, I've long forgotten about any icy Scottish mountains and instead most of my time has been spent daydreaming about hot rock when we're finally released from this this lockdown. Which brings me on to today's interview with Simon Yearsley. Now, I recorded this interview about four weeks ago in the lovely little village of Bankfoot in Perthshire, uh, at Simon's house. Um, for anyone that's not come across Simon before, he's a bit of a staple of the winter climbing community. Um, for quite a long time too, maybe more than 20 years, 20, 30 years. Um, he's sort of particularly focused on, or I should say, he has been traditionally more focused on new routes in remote places, and also he has quite an impressive Alpine and Himalayan track record. Listening back to this, we don't actually touch too much on Simon's winter ascents, and in a way I think I caught him at the perfect time uh, for an interview. As you hear shortly, quite a minor fall that Simon had has led to quite a serious injury that's forced Simon to leave behind winter climbing and alpinism. What I find really interesting about Simon's attitude in this interview is, far from being upset or bitter about what's happened, he's just super psyched to go out there and keep climbing in a way that he still can, and for him that's changing to focus on summer rock climbing. It's uh, quite a long one, uh, so I've split it into two episodes. So grab a brew, sit down and enjoy part one with Simon. So we're here today with Simon Yearsley, who, I'm trying to think of a good way to summarise you. Oh, I'm going to listen now. <laughs> <laughs> Winter climber, new router, alpinist? Yeah, yeah. Three words, yeah. would that be a reasonable? Yeah. I, um, I often... If somebody says, who are you or what are you and how do you describe yourself? I I often say that kind of my, my goal in life is to be the best father, the best husband and the best alpinist that I can, uh, that I can be, but not necessarily always in that order, um, that I can mix those around. But yeah, Scottish, Scottish winter, um, love it. Been part of that furniture for a while. Um, talk a bit about maybe how I got into that and why. Um, done maybe eight, nine trips to the greater ranges. So to uh, the Himalaya, to 
Alaska in winter to sorry Alaska in summer, Canada in winter. Um, lots of trips out to the French Alps and the Italian Alps, the European Alps. So yeah, those those will do. You know, um, yeah, Scottish winter climber, lots of new routes, alpinist, father, husband, bit of a businessman, um, not very good on rock, <laughs> but you know. Um, that that'll do. That'll do yeah. as, a, as, a, as a description. I think. Is that since changed though? They're not so good and wrong. It is. It is. It's. Um, yeah. It. it uh, oh, I don't know if we want to launch straight into this. My my world is changing as we speak. Um, in that, uh, a year ago actually, uh, a year ago next week, I managed to fall off a route. And uh, I've been climbing for donkey's years. I've been climbing for since I was 14 years old. Uh, and I'm 57 now. Um, and this is where you say, oh, you don't look it. <laughs> so I'm 57. Damn. And um, I, and I climbed all over the world and, and, you know, fallen off all over the world. Never hurt myself. Uh, never hurt myself badly anyway. A year ago, I was climbing on Shepherd's Crag in Borrowdale. Uh, and was doing a route I've done loads of times before. I grew up in the Lake, in the Lake District. I've done this route, Crunchy Frog. It's an E1. Done it multiple times. Fell off the first move, 80 centimetres off the ground. Uh, landed with a thump, stumbled forwards, arm outstretched. Um, broke my hand, basically. My hand came off. Complete dislocation of my hand. Um, wasn't just like a little crack bone in my wrist. Um I had full dislocation uh, of my hand, surgery to put it all back together, and over the last year, um, have been getting back into using two axes, which is what I do, um, but long story short, have been told and advised that if I keep climbing with two axes, if the, the, the if you imagine that grip, uh, holding an ice axe, the grip hold, Combined with that kind of wrist cock as you're as you're moving and placing the tool, and doing that into a hard hammer blow, basically is degrading the um, the surface joint area of my left wrist to the point where if I keep doing that, I've got one to three years worth of use out of my wrist. Um, if I don't do that and just rock climb, I've got ten to twelve to fifteen years. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I am. At the moment, on a, a life change from being all those things we just talked about, <laughs> from being an alpinist, from being a great arranged man, being a Scottish new routing, you know, um, uh, activist, to not being any of those, and now going to reinvent myself as a as a rock climber, a, rock, um, a new rock jock. Yeah, I mean, I've I, I said I grew up in the Lake. I was born in Yorkshire, grew up in the Lake District, and was fortunate enough to have parents who who were passionate about mountains and passionate about the fells. And we would be every weekend and every evening during the, or a couple of evenings a week during the summer, we'd be out walking in the hills and they, they encouraged me to get into climbing. Um, so I was climbing from the age of about 11, started seriously climbing when I was about 14. Um, and I probably never really, I've led a few E4s, I've led a few E3s, I've never been a confident E3 climber and I've never been able to say, I've certainly never, you know, if somebody says, what what grade do you climb? I've never said I climb E3. Um, so my goal now is I'm going to, over the next year, reinvent myself as a E3 and Sport 7A uh, rock climber. 
Nice. And forget all this cold nonsense and, and ice axe wielding stuff. No, not forget it, but it's a it's a it's a strange part <coughs> of my life because it's a massive change and a really, really big yeah. shift for me. Um but it's an exciting one as well. Yeah. yeah. It's a really exciting one. And it I kind of chose those grades of E three and seven A because I I I wanted to be doing something that's gonna stretch and gonna push me. Um because I've always had that in in any of the climbing I've done, I've always wanted to do things better and and improve and 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 get do things I've not done before or that hadn't been done before. Um, so being a you know a confident to say yeah, climb E three, yeah, confident all kind of E three and all kinds of seven A would yeah. be yeah would be good. Would be good. We'll have to do this again in a year's time. I know we see, can like have a catch see where up. we get to. E three is one of those funny grades, though, isn't it? I always think of it. It's, it's really similar to HVS where. You get straightforward E3s yeah. and you get the desperate E3s. Yeah. Um, what would you say is the most desperate one that you've done? A desperate E3? Just so I can steer clear of it, Gavin, that's all. <laughs> I can think of a really soft one in Clover, actually. Right. Which so. is, there's an E4 called Roman Candle. Right. And to the left, there's a big roof, right. which, yeah. also, which also gets E3, yeah. which is maybe three or four moves on nice big jugs. If you train right. an indoor wall, it feels right. like climbing a big five plus. Excellent. And kind of hero right. holds. Simon um, puts that mentally on his list. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember the name though. I'm usually Don't worry, I'll find it. I'll find good it. At names. Um, it's really interesting that shift though. It's something. So you said you you would either get like twelve years out your wrist as a rock climber or, or three years as a winter climber. Three, yeah. Given like your kind of background as a winter climber, was there a temptation to just kind of be like, I'll just do the three years and max myself out winter? Do you know climbing? that 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 is a really good question. I. Uh, yes, there was. There was a massive temptation. And the the kind of sequence of events of last year was that last March, I, I fell off. Um, I was determined that, that, you know, it's just, yeah, so what, your hand comes off, you can still be a climber. Yeah. yeah. Um, you can, they'll put it back together, which they did. Um, so it's not like it's gone. Um, and I rehabbed really conscientiously with it. Um, my, my, my physio um, is a great guy. Um, Nick who runs Caledonian Physiotherapy uh, in Perth wonderful guy strong kind of into the sport ethic of things um, and he was pushing me quite hard with the work we were doing on my wrist it was going really well I was confident I would be climbing on it again in June I was uh, out in the Alps uh, seeing my daughter who was working out there soloed a big uh, North Face um, which was a felt really quite spooky and scary but was brilliant because I was back climbing again uh, in um, the the same summer Malcolm and I went out and were doing uh, routes on the north face of Triglav um, so it was all going well and then in the aug- around about August autumn time sorry August I as I do each year started the the more focused training for winter so doing lots and lots of work on on tools um, and and it was then at that point where it started to to really hurt, and there was a massive difference between how much my wrist hurt when I was rock climbing, which it hurt, but it was yeah, kind of suck it up and deal with it. It's going to hurt. Your hand came off, yeah. Um, uh, and uh, but there was a massive difference in the pain levels between when I was working on tools and training with tools to when I was training with, uh, to when I was when I was just rock climbing, uh, and I. Anyway, long long story short, went back to see Nick, my physio. Went to see two specific um, 
uh, bone doctors and they both said the same thing, got, got CT scans on it. And they both said that, yeah, that's your, roughly your time scales. You've got a short length of time to carry on winter climbing with it just because of those movements we talked about before. Or if you're just carrying rock climbing, you know, I want to climb, I'm 57, I want to climb into my 60s, into my 70s, as far as into my 80s as I can. Mm. Um, and there was a massive temptation to like, oh man, you know, I was uh, I was just about to sign up for the uh, for the winter meet, the international winter meet. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. And I, I paused on, on sending my application off because I didn't know if I was going to be able to do that. Malcolm um, and Guy and I are away off to the Himalayas in May, May June. So in a few, you know, a couple of months' time, uh, we're off out to the Himalayas, and I've cancelled out of that. And that, trust me, was a really, really big deal to stop doing those things. Um, I think I was fortunate from a Scottish winter perspective that the last two routes I did. Um, one uh, was uh, we went over to the top tier of Etchigan in November uh, and we did guillotine and it was just an amazing sparkling day Callum and it was one of those days where you know I was I was in the process of making that decision as to whether I was going to keep winter climbing or not and for winter climbing include alpinism and the greater ranges and we had this incredible day um, in just perfect conditions hardly a breath of wind minus 10 minus 12 fun climbing great day got back in you know well in time to to go to the cafe and have some tea and have some beers and and it was wonderful and then a week or so later was climbing on uh jenga buttress on chano with my son where my son ed and a couple of his pals and again it was brilliant climbing fun with them and i kind of thought afterwards do you know what if i'm going to call it that's quite a good stage to call it at when, you know, the last two times I've been out in winter, one was with you know my son and his pals and one was with my great climbing partner and an amazing guy, Malcolm, Malcolm Bass and another friend of ours, um, Adrian. But I, I, I guess those two trips out, those two days out in the hills in winter in Scotland helped me with that decision making in a way because I thought, Okay, I'm I'm happy to leave it at that now. Um, now saying that on uh, Sunday, so two days ago, Malcolm and I were out on Benaglow. We were kind of walking, straight running, you know, um, five half hours uh, on the feet, running in the snow, um, and you know, twenty k in the mountains in winter. So, what I'm stopping doing is technical winter climbing using mm. two tools. I'm stopping doing um himalayan climbing and i'm stopping doing snow and ice-based alpinism but what i'm not stopping doing is climbing and for me the thing the things i i love and i think i've always loved about climbing has been i think three things one it's mountains um because I grew up in the in the Lake District, on the edge of the Lake District. And so for me, climbing was all about climbing in a mountain environment. There weren't climbing walls around, mm. you know, in the kind of back end of the 70s. Uh, well, there were, but they're very few and far between. Um, uh, and so, and, and the, the, you know, climbing was about more about climbing on the big crags in the lakes, multi-pitch climbing. Um, it's about, for me, it's about adventure. So it's about not always going to the same place it's about doing doing things that nobody's done before so it's about doing new routes yeah um 
and and it's also about partners and i i love i love what climbing brings us in terms of the opportunities to meet people and form relationships with people whether those are long-standing relationships like with malcolm bass who i've known for you know climbing for 35 years which is a really deep intense relationship that that i think you know there aren't many opportunities in other walks of life to create and form that type of relationship but also the relationships where you meet somebody in the crag for half an hour you know and you you and you're all down at the climbing wall and you and you you bump into somebody and you have a chat and you talk about a common a common thing and a common theme which is to do with mountains or to do with climbing um or to do with how do you get from that undercut there to that little little edge and lay away you know and it can be any other but the 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 relationships that we form are still there and the fourth one is for me is journeys you know that that i (coughs) i love traveling all around all over the place to go climbing whether that's to go to the northwest of scotland and drive up to foynevin and try some new routes on there in winter, or whether it's to travel to the Siachen Glacier in northwest India. You know, the 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 journey for me is is equally part of it. So so. You know, was I was I conscious about giving that up? Yes, I was. I was conscious about making a decision to stop winter climbing, stop Himalayan climbing, stop snow and ice based alpinism. But if I love mountains, if I love partners, if I love adventure. And I love journeys. I can do all of those four in a um, in a in a in a in a rock-based environment. You know, I can go to Morocco. I can go back out to the Himalaya, and I could go to Zanskar. And there's there's an awful lot of there's probably more incline rock there than you can ever shake a stick at anywhere. You know, mm. but you can go on big trips to places and enjoy things, not necessarily wielding wielding two yeah. axes and getting your you know getting your nuts frozen off. But, <laughs> yeah. So maybe there's an upside. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Do you think new routing in rock will have a similar appeal to winter for you? Ooh, I don't know. I'm not good enough. <laughs> I'll have to find some. My my the relative strengths of my, uh, my my relative strengths in terms of winter climbing and rock climbing. You know, I've I've climbed eight, eight I've climbed Tech Eight, uh, and I climbed Tech Eight quite a few years ago. Um, but as I said before, I've never, I've never really climbed much more than six A. I've never climbed six B. Uh, you know, tried six B grades. Um, so I want to do do as many new routes on rock as I can. I think a lot of those will be in far more far flung places where there's more likelihood of people getting, yeah. you know, not having been there before. I don't think I'm going to do a lot of new routes on Kilnsey. I don't think I'm going to do a lot of routes on, you know, on Moy or, or wherever, yeah, or on Mingalay, you know, there's, um, I'll have to go a little bit further afield to, to find those. Um, but, you know, that's still something I want to do, the adventurous part of it. You know, I don't yeah. want to go and climb at you know, much as I love and it's very close to here, you know, Upper Cave and, and Polney, that I don't want to climb on Upper Cave or Polney or Stanage. You know, I don't want to climb on that type of places all the time. I want to go and climb in adventurous places. Yeah. Uh, you know, and ideally new stuff as well. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. And I really like the idea, like those, those kind of four key points and how winter climbing for you, which is kind of the vehicle for those points to to come to fruition and you can still find it in different ways yeah i i i I think you're right although that probably wasn't i've only formulated that idea of those 
for things uh, over the last maybe 10 years or so. Um, as I think a lot of us do, you know, when we get into something and we get good at it, um, we go into, you know, we start, well, let's just take climbing, because that's what we're here to talk about. You know, when you, when you start climbing, and when I started climbing, it was it was because my parents encouraged me to, because it was a really good club, the West Cumbrian Mountaineering Club that I joined kind of by accident. Um, and they were there were you know a couple of really influential and lovely people. There's a guy called Bill Pattinson who's still around, wonderful guy, lives in Eskdale, um, in the Lake District, uh, sorry in Gosforth, and he's just he was always a really gently enthusiastic guy. And I thought, wow, that's what I want to do. And I'd read some books that really enthused me, the classic Bonningtons I choose to climb and Tom Patey's book and all of those things. And as a young, you know, 15, 16 year old, that's what I wanted to do. And I just threw myself at it. I didn't then have four pillars around which I was going to try and base it. I just wanted to go climbing, man, and just, you know, yeah. run around with my mates and, and, you know, bivy out places and hitch to places and jump on trains and go to places and go climbing. Yeah. Um, and... And after a few years, in fact, when I was, when was I? I was 15, I think. And the West Cumbria Mountaineering Club, where they came up to, they had a, a week at the Inverallen uh, Cottage in uh, Glenetiv. And we came, uh, it's the, um, I can't remember whose club, anyway, it was a lovely hut then, um, still is. And we came up there for a week. And I'd, I'd been around Scotland on holidays with my parents and I'd done a little bit of winter climbing in, in the lakes. Not really winter climbing. Um, and we came up and it was a fantastic journey. It took like a day to a full day to drive from the lakes up to uh, to Glencoe. We got there. The people who'd been driving were all knackered. I'd been sitting in the back of the car, really keen, enthusiastic to get Sight out there and do stuff. And, uh, and it was a sparkling day. And they said, oh, we're going to go for a walk. I'm like, what? No, we need to go and climb something. Oh, no, we're going to go for a walk. They're all way older than me. I was 15. Yeah. They were all in kind of mid twenty. Was that summer or winter? Winter. This winter, was in winter. Yeah. This was in January 78. Uh, 78, 79, yeah, 78. And I was, yeah, I was 15. And um, and so I said, please, can I go climbing? I go climbing. I said, all right. Then they dropped me off at the bottom um, by the Clackade, um, where the, the Clackade Road meets. And they said, oh, you should just go and climb something up there, walk back down the ridge and go back to the cottage. Fantastic. And I went up and I soloed dinnertime buttress yeah. on the west face of NFD and then went down into um, Stockholm and Lochen. And I looked at this cliff in front of us like, wow. I was by myself. I was selling 15 years old yeah. on a sparkly day with, I remember, a huge rucksack with like five pairs of cl- different changes of clothes in it and emergency <laughs> rations. And a, I think I even had a primer stove. In, I had a stove or something in there, one of those little meth stoves. And uh, lugging this big pack. And I climbed up, uh, I think I climbed Broad Gully, um, climbed NC Gully. Um, and then went down over the top uh, and skirted underneath um, uh, church door buttress and went, tried to get up the left hand, the right hand side there, couldn't get up it, went up the central gully up there. And I, I, I kid you not, I remember looking across over onto that steep buttress of church door buttress, which was sparkly white, and thinking, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if you could do a climb up there in winter? come back to that in a few years time mm. and then basically went up onto the ridge and then wandered all the way down the ridge and back into Glenetiv and that I still smile when I think of that day now because that had such a big impact on me yeah. about being able to be <coughs> you know 15 15 years old with a bunch of people who were enthusiastic 
but that day just happened to not be as enthusiastic as I wanted to be. But then, you know, they were they were looking after me. Of course, they were they were taking care of me. Say, off you go, Simon, go and do it. And it just was a, a magical day. And I remember getting back to the hut completely wrecked, but just with the biggest smile on my face and didn't stop talking about it. Yeah. Um, and and I think that, you know, you look for seminal moments, but that had mountains, that had adventure. You know, it had a journey. Uh, didn't have a partner in it who just me but you know that that had some of the things that I just absolutely loved absolutely or, or you know then I, I realized at the time those were things that really made an impression uh, on me um, yeah and it was you know and that was I then that was something that from a Scottish winter perspective that's something where I thought wow that's I'd like to do more and more and more of that um, and then I bought um, a copy of Ian Clough's uh, guidebook uh, to the Ben um, and was just, it was a little paper-based version, uh, paper uh, guidebook, Ben and Glencoe. And I just remember just sitting, reading, 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 and I could recite virtually every every route that was in there, including when it says things like, you know, um, Orion Direct, brackets, unrepeated, you know, 0.5, unrepeated. So all those routes had yet to be repeated in in. 78 yeah. or would I think they just I think Orion Direct had been repeated by Al Rouse in 78 but you know it was rare it was that time when these things were there and I'd seen them and I wanted to just go and do more of them and yeah. it was uh, it was start of some big adventure you know it really was um, I'm really glad you mentioned about like memorising guidebook descriptions because yeah. I'm really bad for that and I thought I had this sort of sad habit of looking through guidebooks when I'm at home and... I I um I haven't seen my, 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 I think any climber's toilet is one of the best the places to look, to look, because in there are scattered, you know, copies of Mountain Magazine from, you know, I think, volume, or the issue 20 of Mountain Magazine, and every guidebook you can imagine from all over the place, and that, and that guidebook here, this doesn't really work well on, uh, on a podcast, but, you know, I have in my hand the, uh, it's what, four inches wide, five inches high, Guide to Winter Climbs of Ben Nevis and Glen Clough by Ian Clough, revised by Hamish McInnes, and this is the 78 reprint of it. Um, but, you know, I, I, lo- I love some of the bits in here where where it talks about, he said putting his glasses on from a 57-year-old, <laughs> but it talks about things like, um, yeah, it talks about timing. It says speed is as vital as it is in the Alps, and although the times can, be vary, can vary enormously, According to conditions encountered, a fast time is a criteria of ability. Conversely, a slow time is a general sign of incompetence. <laughs> and then later on it says time. As a further aid to estimating the difficulty of the climb, a time based on a competent Scottish pair leading through in average conditions has been given after each grading. This is only a very rough guide and can, times can vary drastically. Many English parties will probably find that it takes longer than these times suggested and should make allowances accordingly. <laughs> and I remember, you know, the 16-year-old reading that and just laughing my socks off, thinking, right, come on then. I'm a Yorkshireman, grew up in the Lake District. Let's see what happens. It's, it's like throwing a gun, really, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. But it's just it's just a great, you know, and it talks about the... Um, oh, it takes about, you know, the big bay to the right of Minus Three Gully and left of Observatory Ridge... You know, after the passage of 10 years, experts still regard these routes as considerable or suitable only for the most expert ice climbers, you know. And these are things like, you know, Orion Face, 0, 0.5, Observatory, all of these things. So, yeah. 
you know, a little thing like like that of how many pages of 70, 80 pages just had a a huge impact. Yeah. Um, and it's a great, you know, I, I often think back about, you know, what are the influential things that have spurred me on to do things? And that is very, very definitely one of them. Um, and it's one of my one of my treasured little treasured possessions, really. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and, uh, going back into, you know, getting getting back into Scottish winter climbing. Um, also getting into Scottish winter climbing when I was 15, 16 was, yeah, I, something that has been a big part of my life and I've enjoyed. <laughs> Just looking through the book. I was interested the time because that's something that's been you don't get that in modern guidebooks anymore. No. They don't give a time. No. But the the point five description is grade five seven to twenty nine hours. Yeah, because <laughs> I think twenty nine was the first first ascent and seven was the se- yeah. seven hours was the second ascent. So they only had two two to go on. It's really interesting. I remember reading about the history of point five and Orion Face and routes like that. It was, it was Smith and Marshall did yeah. the first ascent yeah. back in the late sixties. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I remember, I think it was the, the Paul Diffley film, um, Hot Eggs, yeah, where yeah, yeah, Dave yeah, McLeod yeah. and Andy Turner redo yeah. them. And there's so many interesting things that came out of that. One in particular was the thought that they never really got repeated in the same style that Smith and Marshall did them. No. So cutting steps all the way up. And when you think about it, if, so if they, were, they did the first ascent of 0.5 in seven hours, yeah. cutting steps. Yeah. I mean, I've done 0.5 and I think I took longer than seven yeah. hours <laughs> with my arsenal of yeah, modern gear. I think I think it's you know for me the 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 world of climbing has got so so much important history in it and it's got so much cultural history in it it's got so much amazing literature in it it's got so much kind of technical history as well in terms of development of 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 you know, Scottish winter take ice axes. You know, the de- development of that physical piece of metal that sits in your hand has has just changed. Uh, you know, beyond beyond measure. You know, even since I've been been climbing, and, and will change again. And will and so these these kind of technological changes, I think, are are really really interesting because they enable us to do things usually a lot easy, more easily. But also, they they do tend they they do have the opportunity to change the style of how we do things and change the way in which they do things. A daft example: I was I was out with my dog today, and I was like punching the air because on my phone I've got the View Ranger app, hmm. and I've just worked out today how to plot routes on View Ranger. Now, you know, View Ranger is a brilliant map product, and it's really really powerful. And I've not yet, I've only today twigged how to use it. I'd almost put that alongside this guidebook to Ben Nevis and Glencoe that came out in 1978 as two influential things, if you like, because one is the, 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 his, the history that can inspire us. And the other one is the, the continued technological advances in what we, in what we do, you know, and obviously from a rock climbing perspective, you know, Cami devices, curved curved nuts, um, you know, uh, lightness of gear. All of those things have have got you know lightness of of helmets, lightness of ropes, um, ability to to have places to go train. All of those things technologically make such a big difference to what we to what we do. 
Um, and I sometimes find myself as a 57-year-old thinking, shit, am I getting kind of like... If ever, if ever I fold my arms and go, oh, well, it's not like it was in my... Rock back on my heels. And not like it was in my day. You or anybody else has the, has the permission to punch me in the face. Because right? <laughs> I vowed I will never, ever, ever do that. Because, yeah. you know, I think we're... we're you know, and I, one of my uh, kind of tenets in life is always to be learning and always to be saying, well, what, you know, what can I learn that's, that's, that will, that will improve what I do or improve the way I do it, be that climbing, be that being a father, being a husband, whatever it is, being a businessman, whatever it is. But there's something about never standing back and rocking back on one's, one's heels. It's about looking, looking forwards. And for me, looking forwards with this nearly always a degree of excitement, if not trepidation but you know looking forward to what the next thing can do so if you know if anybody did see me walking the dog and punching there in the middle of a field when staring at my phone it's because i got view i understood how to work view ranger yeah. with a downloaded map i'm like wow i'm in there man um so you know almost as important as a as a as ian clough's guide to ben nevis and glencoe in terms of things that things that give me excitement and keep my climbing going, if you like. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a strong plug for the, the View Ranger phone app. <laughs> well, I tell you, there is, there is a lovely, <laughs> there's a lovely downside, well, not downside, there's a kind of counter story to that, that at the weekend, Malcolm and I were on Beneglow, and um, Malcolm was ripping the piss out because I had the, my, proudly, my View Ranger app, but I'd forgotten to download the map. So we get to the bottom of Beneglow and it's completely useless because there's no signal. So you're saying, what's the point of having that? And then I had my Garmin phone on um, that was working okay, but doesn't have the maps downloaded on it. And of course, we had a map and a compass. And we, <laughs> I don't know if you've done the Beneglow Ridge in poor visibility, but it twists and turns and it's some quite complex navigation. And we were running, we were chatting, that it was vicious wind, snowing quite a lot. And we were, we were, we were navigating carefully but not with the technical aids that we had. And and then the map blew away. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm holding the map, and this map just bi- disappeared off towards Ben McDewey, I think it'll last be seen on. Be seen on. And um, so we're there with all this lack of tech gear yeah. and a compass. Um, so part of the reason for getting the view, getting the, the view ranger, myself through the view ranger, was the necessity of... Not having Malcolm ripping the piss so much. Yeah, uh, it's heavier than map as well. Might not blow away. I know, and yeah, hopefully, yeah. (laughs) But it's got a limited battery life. But yeah, yeah. it's interesting that so you've been climbing for quite a long. Is it forty years? Yeah, yeah, forty more more than yeah. Yeah. uh, Well, that yeah, forty odd years, forty plus, yeah, yeah, forty two, three. And it strikes me as that's a long time for climbing to go through changes in its ethics. And yeah. you were talking about never wanting to be seen as someone sitting back and saying, oh, back in my day, it was like this. But yeah. to an extent, do you think ethics are people saying that we've set the standard and this is what it has to be from now on? Or what do you think? Uh, have we got about five hours for this well, podcast? <laughs> so, but I, I think, I genuinely think the, so the, so the ethics within climbing and by climbing i mean in it's in all of its different facets and all of its different kind of sub sports i think ethics are one of the things that keeps the sport together drives it forward and splits it apart and brings it back together and creates 
gentle debate and creates punch-ups. And, and, and it's because I think we, we, I say we as a climate community, most of the climate community care so passionately about what they do and how they do it. And, and yet climbing for me always comes from a slightly anarchic, um, non-rules-based uh, base, base point. It certainly does for me because, you know, I, climbing in the late 70s, early 80s was all about sod it, I'm going to go and do something different. And I think it always has been. You know, from the kinder trespass onwards, mm. you know, it's about being seen to be doing something different. Um, and I think when we go out and choose just to go and do something different ourselves, and then we enter a world which is called climbing, which has certain rules around it, there's a tension. There's always going to be a tension. Um, when I started climbing, there was a tension around using chalk. You know, do you use chalk or not? Oh, using chalk, that's cheating. Well, it's kind of not, but... Is it? Hmm. Actually, it might be anyway cheating, but you know that's come to be something no one would ever question yeah. the use of chalk now. But what we do do is we have, you know, take the bouldering ethic of removing tick marks. You know, we 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 build in some of those, some of those debates and arguments go round and round and round and round, and I think we move and we advance them. Um, you know, sport, sport climbing and, and the whole concept of red point, I think, is a really interesting one. That, you know, how closely do you take the idea of a red point to, uh, do, to trad climbing? And some people will, will merge the two. Other people will only accept or will only in themselves feel happy and comfortable with, you know, a trad route that's done in either an on-site or you know isn't isn't red pointed basically and so and yet within sport climbing red point is part of the way you do things you know no again nobody would ever would ever question it if that's then what you you claim it as um i think within our sport we can sometimes get hung up on some of the minutiae ethics within the sport that wouldn't make sense to anybody else Red pointing being a good example, I think one of the things I've seen over the over the past four, five, six, maybe seven, eight years, is more of an is a growing interest in more of the ethics about the impact that our sport has. Now, whether that's on how many air flights we choose to take to Malaga every year, whether that's uh, whether we car share to go to the crag whether that uh, we are more diligent around not leaving, I was going to say cigarette butts, but that wouldn't be, no, but not leaving the kind of easy-to-leave detritus around crags, mm-hmm. which I think we are. So I think we're seeing within the sport as a, as, a, as a whole, a lot of the ethics grow from just being the inter-sport anal debates about small differences to thinking more about how we take our sport into the rest of the world and the impact that our sport has on, on the rest of the world. I Sitting where we are now in mid-March with the coronavirus going to go wherever it's going to go, um, thinking forward to Tokyo, I think having climbing as a, as a sport in the Olympic Games is just going to be incredible. 
in, and it's going to have a massive impact. In what way? I don't really know. And in what direction? I don't know. But I know it's going to have an impact. And I hope it has an impact on, you know, on, on participation. I hope it has an impact on the kind of egalitarian view of that participation. It doesn't matter who you are, what background you are, what cultural references you have, what um, personal reference points you have. You can you can go climbing. You can go to a bouldering gym. You can go to a climbing wall. You can go and you know join a climbing club, or you can go and buy a bit of gear and, and make it up yourself. Um, that I think that will have a an increase in the overall participation. I think we are so so lucky to be participants in a sport which, okay, has inherent dangers. Because you can kind of fall off and snap your wrist, or you can fall off and kill yourself, you know, or you can be avalanched and kill yourself, and 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 or you know your your father can die, your mother can die, your children can die. You know, the the reality is the sport that we play. If you do it in a lot of its forms, it has inherent risk in it. But I also think it has such massive massive positive value mm. for us as individuals for um <coughs> groups of people and if you look at the link between um mental health and climbing it's in absolutely incontroversial incontrovertible it, impossible to deny whatever the word is i mean but you know the, that that being that climbing and especially climbing outdoors is so so rich and varied way of improving an individual's mental health um and if we can be if we're part of that then the little internal ethics if you like can sometimes in my view just they can just take a little back seat we can pat them on the head and, and leave them there i think sometimes we have to look at the bigger impact hmm. and the bigger advantages if you like of the sport that we're that we're in i'm not sure if that answered that question at all no it's interesting it's, oh, it's, it's um, you know, I think I, I have, you know, on a personal point of view, I've got some really strong ethics around my climbing. Like if, uh, if you know, when I was doing lots of new routes in winter, they would all be ground up. Uh, we would, Malcolm and I would never go and do a route in summer that we knew we were going to try in winter. Um, we, if ever we fell off a route, we would, do, uh, we would make sure that that was described um you could call that a point of aid or not but you know if ever you fell off it took two leader falls whatever um the second always has to climb as cleanly as the as the first always has to aim to climb as cleanly as the as the leader and uh, i don't think we did use any points of aid no i don't think we did um and ethical the wind the winter conditions ethic was one that we always had a strong uh strong view of a very simplistic view turf's got to be frozen um it's got to look and feel wintry um and so we would always apply those and there were some routes that we didn't do because they didn't fit those criteria mm. so yeah i've always, i have got my own strong personal personal ethics um and i've got you know my own ethics around greater ranges in terms of the impact that we have uh on you know on approaches into climbs the fact that you know all of our porters that we use have to be insured. They have to be paid well through 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 bona fide porter agents. Um, we have to buy uh, our the vast majority of our stuff in country. You know, we're not there ship, shipping stuff all over the place. So, 
got got some of my own morals and my own ethics. I'm interested in the bigger picture and the bigger ethics of our of our game. Yeah, have those ethics stayed pretty st- like the same throughout your climbing, or have they evolved in any way? The reason I think about this is because <laughs> when you talk about the bigger picture, it reminds me of a very stupid incident of mine where I think when I first started climbing, uh, doing an E two or something, and it had a bit of a wobble, and uh, for a split second there was a peg yeah. in front of me. And I put my finger through it. Eek. Yeah, yeah. And then as soon as I put my finger through it, I clipped and lowered off and untied and just walked away. Right. I was so upset. <laughs> yeah. And every time I think back to how kind of stupid really that is to beat myself up about it. And that ethic for me has kind of changed where I don't pull on gear, but I'm also not that precious. But is it similar for you? Have your ethics kind of evolved over the years? I, I, or? I think... I think the, the the world impact and the and the environmental impact ethic has grown massively yeah. in the last three or four years, um, or four or five years, as I think the, the, the our cognizance, our awareness of that as an issue has grown. <coughs> um, I think back to a day that myself and a chap called Steve Adderley, who I don't climb with anymore, um, we had on Cloggy, and I think it was probably about 83, 82, 83, and we were climbing in North Wales, both students in Sheffield, we'd hitched over, um, we were climbing on Cloggett and we had we did an, we had an amazing day we did Lithrig we did Pinnaclerette with a hand traverse finish so that's three routes we then came down and did uh, Troach I think which is Z2 that's one, two, three four, four routes on Cloggy on this summer's day and then we looked at each other and thought we should really try and do Great Wall and we were we were really climbed up we were climbing as hard as we climbed uh, in a long time and Steve led the first pitch, and whether that's harder or harder or not as hard as the second pitch, certainly got six a bit on it. And I was seconding it, and there used to be a little peg on the the crook section of there, and I did exactly the same, but on seconding it. And I was I was I was fairly trashed by then. I knew I had to lead the next pitch, and I remember reaching. I can remember the physical act of reaching off this little layaway and seeing the peg getting higher and higher and higher and it was at nose height and I put my finger through it Yeah. and Steve who was like three metres above me I can't say what he said but honestly he gave me the most tirade of abuse you stupid beep 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 and I immediately was like took my finger out he, he'd forgotten about the rope and then I you know probably felt what, three metres something like that just on the on this bit of rope stretch and the slack and I remember being so pissed off. Got up to the stance. And we debated for about half an hour. Should we just ab off? Because it's just ruined the whole ruined the whole day. You know, ruined the whole day. And as that's, yeah, I've had a strong ethic about when you're climbing, when you're rock climbing, you're there to climb the rock. If you want to aid climb, that's that's a different branch of the sport. If you want to use a described point of aid, that's fine. Try and eliminate it if you can. But I felt it was that finger, it was that forefinger, that that you know that first thing. I, I hated it for for months afterwards. We we didn't have off. We kind of gave ourselves a good stern talking to. I did climb the climb it free, uh, you know, without that, that. And then I did throw myself at that next pitch um, and scare myself. I don't know if you've ever done it, but it's this long pitch in the middle of nowhere. You're leading off this this wonderful brilliant on you know one of the most iconic walls yeah. it's a slab Earth. isn't it like a big, it, it's kind slab. of a steepish slab yeah 
it, it, but it's just in the most... I remember looking left and looking right and wow, you know, this is well before Indian Face and all the rest of it. Masters Wall, just like, wow, what an amazing place. And being really tired and really scared, really scared as you go, this kind of thin, groovy thing and then make this one hard, probably no more than five, say, but one hard move right, just in the middle of nowhere. Um, and, and yet, and then the joy we had of then having done that climb was just superb, absolutely superb. And I, you know, we've, I've always had a strong ethic about the style in which I will climb something. And I've always had a strong ethic about if I don't climb it in that style, then I'll, I'll, I'll describe it as this. I'll, I'll, I'll admit, if you like, to not having climbed it in that style. Um, but it, I, you know, and I think most climbers do because who are you kidding? You, you're just kidding yourself. Yeah. And by your story, you know, that, that had a big impact on you. You know, you were, by the sound of it, really, really pissed off having having hooked your finger through that peg. And, so, and when you think about it, it's such a dangerous thing to do anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not, not recommended. Putting your finger through a peg. Oh, I'm safe yeah. now. Yeah. Peg rips out. Absolutely. Or digit yeah. ripped off, whichever. You know, choose your, choose your outcome. One of the two is going to happen. <laughs> It's always, it just blows my mind that such, if you tried to explain what just happened in either of our situations to a non-climber, they would, they would look at you as if you're crazy. Absolutely. You know, yeah. and, and, and that's where I think the, 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 the kind of community of climbing, it has been really important for me. And I really enjoy that, that you and I can sit here and we know each other a little bit, but we've never climbed together. We, we've, you know, we, we know each other yeah, enough to sit and have a chat through to, but I don't, I don't know what's important to you. I don't know your politics. I don't know what you think about other climbers, but we can have that same conversation. Um, and that's almost what I was talking about before about partnerships and that when you have a community of climbers who have a degree of common language and certainly within, if you look at, Himalayan alpinists if you look at alpinists if you look at Scottish winter climbers if you look at more at the kind of subsets if you like if you look at you know trad climbers if you look at people who spend all the day you know and don't venture outside of um outside of climbing walls which is you know which is a wonderful sport in itself there are there's a whole common culture and common language around that and one of the daft thing but one of the things I've really enjoyed in the last six months or five months is going down to Perth climbing wall. And the Perth climbing wall isn't, you know, it's not a massive, it's a 10 metre wall. Um, it's that classic, am I a big climbing wall or am I a bouldering wall? I'm kind of, I'll try and do everything. But it's a great wall and the atmosphere in there is lovely. And the roots are, the roots are great. The, the vibe you get when you're in there and the people you get to chat to and the, the relationships that you, that you build through going down to a local wall. I've not, Training on a local wall for a long time. I've normally, through focusing on winter, just been in my in my garage on pull-ups. Um, so it's something I've I've really enjoyed getting back into, and I've kind of missed that the the power of that uh, little community that can be based around one small climbing wall, you know, in in rural Perthshire. Um, but it's all about the common stories, the common. Um, the common kind of cultural things that, that, that bind us together in that, you know, small 10 metre climbing wall. Yeah. Um.